My name is Tony Smaniato from Colliers, and I'm on the Programs Committee along with Jerry Moore and Marjorie Kurkowski. We've got an exciting uh, group today, and just as a reminder, after this meeting, our planning, uh, our, excuse me, our Programs Committee will be meeting here in the Barbera Room if you'd like to chime in and give us some thoughts. Um, we've got some great programs coming up, including those about creating value through your real estate portfolio. We've got some great technology elements uh, in the final stages of planning, and we're also going to we're trying to put together a program that's coming together well on the impact of electronic commerce on uh, the supply chain and how the supply chain thus affects real estate. So we're excited about those. Uh, some of you may uh, know of these gentlemen, but you might have read in the last uh, last October Chicago Tribune, our great uh, critic Blair Kamen, architecture critic, wrote. Chicago, the city of Daniel Burnham, and his off-quoted epigram, make no little plans, doesn't even have a planning department. Yes, you read that right, end quote. So how can a big city like ours that's known for these great projects, like Millennium Park, this uh, incredible abundance of residential housing that's brought this great life to our urban center, and all these other big deals, how could our city not even have the word planning in any of its departments? Well, it's my great pleasure today to introduce uh, you to our speakers from Roosevelt University. John DeVries on my far left is the director of the Marshall Bennett Institute, uh, a real player in our community, as you know. And alongside him is uh, D. Brad Hunt, the dean of the university's Stone College of Professional Studies. And uh, together, uh, they will discuss with us uh, their conclusions and observations drawn from their recent book entitled Planning Chicago. Uh, the first 25 registrants uh, will receive a free copy and a signed copy, signed today of this book. They're available out here. Check with Beth if you feel you're registered quickly. Uh, but the book examines the current state of city planning in uh, Chicago, and it'll take us on a detailed and vivid tour of Chicago's development history and its successes. But most importantly, they'll wrap it up with asking the questions, where do we go from here? It's a, a great read. I hope you all uh, get into it if you haven't already. And sorry we're running late, so without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Brad Hunt and John DeVries. Give them a warm welcome, please, and bear with us today. We're running a little late. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Brad Hunt. Uh, John and I will uh, trade back and forth. We'll tag team on our presentation today. I want to thank Tony uh, and Cornet Global for inviting us here. We're very excited to tell you about our work and its continuing ongoing uh, impact in the city. I'm going to uh, talk first about, I'm trained as a historian, so I'm going to take us back a little bit to some of the history and explain how this really uh, leads up to the present and also can inform uh, our future. Planning Chicago has several themes. One is that Chicago uh, once planned confidently in a period from 1958 to 1974. Uh, and we did, uh, after that, we also created a really innovative city industrial policy in the 1980s and 90s, and John will, will talk a bit about that. And in the process, we did tremendous things that we see today. The central area of Chicago has revived, but we're going to argue that planning has faltered a bit. We've lagged a bit. We're not as innovative as we once were, and we're falling behind the way other cities are now aggressively planning for their futures. We still struggle, as we all know, with neighborhoods planning in the city. There are many neighborhoods that really uh, are, are really truly struggling, and it's the, what to do about that is still a challenge, but there are hopeful signs, and we'll talk about that. And we face future challenges as well, demographic and fiscal. We tend to think 
Chicago has arrived, it's finished, we have Millennium Park, it's beautiful, isn't it great? But we need to think about the next 50 years, and we need to think about that systematically, and we need to plan. We need to do the kind of city planning that we did in the past that got us to where we are now. We need to do that in the future. I'm going to take us through, uh, I'm sorry, our final point. We're, we're going to argue that the city of Chicago needs a new comprehensive plan to guide us and our capital budgeting decisions and our vision uh, for the future of the city. Let me take you through uh, an earlier historical period when Chicago planned confidently. I'm not going to go back to Daniel Burnham, 1909. Many of you are familiar with that. Uh, we think that that's a great history, but there's this other period uh, that's been neglected and that really can inform the future. Here's a slide of Richard J. Daly. He's in the middle here. And he is standing over a model of the 1958 development plan for the central area of Chicago. He loved this model. He had it in his office. He'd bring people in and point to it. Surrounding him are what we would call today the growth coalition, the, the bankers, the business interests who were very eager to uh, save Chicago and save the city. Remember, in the 1950s, everyone's fleeing to the suburbs. Many uh, Rust Belt cities, or, or many cities in the Midwest are about to enter a Rust Belt phase. Uh, but here, Richard J. Daly has consolidated planning power and very aggressively uh, plans for the city's future. The 1958 development plan for the central area of Chicago is one that probably no one in this room has heard of. It's not Daniel Burnham. It doesn't have many pretty pictures. Uh, it's, but, but it's a very influential document, we argue. And it called for a compact, accessible loop, that the loop should be dense, that it shouldn't spread out and sprawl out. Uh, and that would then make it more accessible for our transit that, that, we, ha that we currently have. It also called for 50,000 new residents. The, re the residential component that we see today is called for in this 1958 plan. That residential component was radical at the time. Everybody's moving to the suburbs. What, you want to bring 50,000 people downtown? That's a, a really, a truly a, a radical idea at the time. Uh, it called for a new University of Illinois campus. Uh, it called for transit expansion uh, at a time when other cities, again, are building highways, uh, not transit. And uh, the, we, we see the fruits of this. It's really hard. You know, you can't look at Marina City or the University of Illinois at Chicago and not think about that this, this was a vision for the city that called for a strong downtown. Marina City being the first of many residential developments. This is going to take a long time. This is not going to happen quickly, uh, but the idea of building apartments right around the loop, even now in the loop, uh, comes from uh, this plan in 1958. Uh, let me move on to the second plan. So we have this period, 1958, is going to tee up the central area, and then Chicago is going to even become more bold and say, we need a comprehensive plan. This is really uh, the first since Burnham. There was another one in 1943 that is a historical footnote. Uh, but this is the heyday of modern planning in Chicago. It's a comprehensive plan, but it's not one that's purely top-down. It called for citizen input, uh, and it, it called for the city to be an economic leader in the region. And so there's an economic component to this. This isn't just land use, what building's going to go where. It's about industry. It's about jobs. It's about education. It's about the whole thing that we would think of and how to, what is a great uh, city. It had a specific goal to reduce what we call a white flight. Uh, the city was hemorrhaging people to the suburbs, and the goal was we didn't want to uh, lose more of our population. It divided the city into 16 sub-area plans. Those sub-areas are still being used today uh, as, as planning spaces in the city, divide the city into 16 spaces. 
And it called for a 15-year capital plan. Not only is planning about what's going to go where, uh, it's about how are we going to use our scarce resources to build, to build Chicago. Uh, and it was run by a true department that was really strong, the Department of Planning of Development and Planning that had a, had a that was well-staffed, well-funded, really a leader here. Uh, the 1966 Comprehensive Plan had some pretty pictures. Um, here's one of park space, um, but it covered all sectors. Again, housing, land use, health, industry, parks. I mean, there, this was truly looking at the entire city in all its dimensions. This is not what's going to go on every single corner. This is to set up a structure so that sub-plans could be developed and then plans before that, below that, uh, that would set up a regulatory framework for how the city develops. So the 1966 Comprehensive Plan, I'm, I don't know if many people have heard of it, but it gave us uh, a lot of really important uh, things for Chicago. The first is it set up regulatory plans for how we would manage important spaces, like the lakefront. The lakefront it did not have a strong regulatory environment in 1966, and Lake Point Tower was stuck out on the lake, and there was a lot of people who said, let's build more towers along what today we think of as the lakefront. The, the, plan, the regulatory plan that emerged from the 1966 plan, remember that the comprehensive plan is a big picture plan, then you delve down into the regulatory plans. The lakefront plan preserves the lakefront that we see today. Uh, it regulates development. It creates setback zones. Uh, and it's preserved an incredibly important asset for the city. In the same way, the River Edge Plan of 1974, another follow-on plan from the Comprehensive Plan of 1966, is the first to say the river is an asset. Before that, it was a dumping ground. Uh, and it set up a, a regulatory framework for how will development occur along the river. These were important planning exercises uh, that really shaped the city we see to get today. One more uh, is the plan, a sub-area plan. Remember, the city's divided into 16 areas. Here's one of the 16 areas, the near south. You can't understand this area uh, around Soldier Field uh, and the South Loop without understanding Chicago 21 from 1973. It called for Dearborn Park, which was an important uh, residential development that also signaled people can come downtown, live in downtown, uh, and spur the 24-hour city that we see today. So these were uh, important planning, a, a period of really strong planning in the city uh, with a strong public interest intended to protect this compact accessible loop, also to plan the entire city uh, and to think about our future systematically. After 1973, after the, these plans from 58, 66, and 1973, um, Chicago kind of moves away from uh, strong planning. We, we do have a plan in 1983. Uh, it called for a World's Fair, which is kind of like a Hail Mary pass. You know, you kind of throw it out there, and maybe we do this big thing, and it will come. The World's Fair never took hold. It would have been very expensive. Other World's Fairs at this time didn't, lost lots of money. Maybe we dodged a bullet. Uh, but the, uh, the planning kind of starts to, to erode as a core um, task of the city. And uh, I'm going to turn to John for a second here, but uh, industrial policy, jobs kind of replace uh, land use planning uh, as the major goal of the city. Uh, but while the city was going through um, these massive demographic changes that, uh, that Brad's talked about, um, it was also going through a massive change in its, its job base, its employment base. Um, this was a city that was heavily impacted by structural change in American industry. So during the same time frame, 
we had lost uh, tens of thousands of jobs in the steel industry. Uh, people forget we also had a thriving apparel industry at this time. We had a thriving printing industry. And all of these uh, industries were heavily impacted. Uh, so we had significant unemployment accompanying uh, this problem of white flight, this demographic change. And in the midst of this, uh, Chicago elected its first black mayor, Harold Washington. And um, when he came into office to segue from the World's Fair, uh, Harold didn't think much of the World's Fair. He signed it as a draft, but uh, within a year, uh, he put out a jobs plan uh, very much focused on stimulating jobs in the neighborhood. Uh, he also had uh, on his staff a creative bunch of people, a lot of them from UIC, Rob Muir and, and so on. And uh, the task forces really never were able to impact things much. They proposed nice things like job training centers and uh, let's, let's help uh, industries do more exporting and so on and so forth. Those are all wonderful ideas. But the strategy that uh, really built on the city's core capabilities was one that we call a sector strategy. And that was when the city started proposing, let's, let's designate districts where we can protect uh, manufacturing and job growth. And the first of these was this North Branch Corridor, which was formed in reaction to residential expansion coming west from Lincoln Park. People forget Lincoln Park was actually the southern part of Lincoln Park. It was actually an urban renewal area in those days. And it was experiencing some success attracting residents to the point that a lot of the industries along the Clarborn and Elston area were saying, well, the neighbors are complaining about the noise. And the retail, real estate community said, uh, we'd love to have Goose Island become townhouses. So um, that resulted in, uh, beginning under Mayor Sawyer and then starting uh, with Richard M. Daley, much to everyone's surprise, Richard M. Daley did embrace the idea of the industrial corridors. And subsequently, under Valerie Jarrett, uh, the city produced a, three, a series of three major studies called Corridors of Opportunity that led to designating about 24 of these corridors around the city, arguably the largest uh, industrial and job retention program of any city in America. Uh, and it's had some successes. Uh, on the top, you see a picture of Goose Island with the Wrigley Innovation Center, uh, their R&D facility on the north side. On the lower left, you see Finkel Steel, which was uh, saved from closing up on Southport, and more recently uh, had been bought by a German company and was going to move to Quebec and the city was able to work with them and uh, recycle a major site in the Burnside area on the south side. You see on the lower right there, they'll actually quadruple their production here in Chicago. Uh, high quality steel, over 3,000 employees, uh, a massive new on-site railroad system, uh, so on and so forth. So this is, this is what the corridors look like. They, they mirror a lot of the historic rail and, uh, and water areas, as you would imagine. One of the last uh, areas to uh, receive active attention uh, was the south side. The, this is a policy that, that started on the north side because of a lot of land use conflicts. But the south side was the one that had really been hammered uh, by the plant closings. And in 1997, uh, Arthur Anderson undertook a citywide industrial study, which I worked on. And then subsequent to that, we said Calumet needs a lot more attention. And we were able to uh, put in place what to that point was the biggest TIF in the city. Uh, and a land use plan, which you see here, and 1,300 acres of largely former steel mill plants designated for new uses. Uh, the good news about this planning exercise that we did is that within six months of us completing the final stages of the plan and putting the TIF in place, Ford Motor announced a national competition to build their first auto supplier park in North America. 
And um, we uh, were a finalist in that competition with Atlanta. Chicago had one of the oldest plants. Henry Ford came here and started this plant in the 1920s. Um, and uh, we won the competition. We were able to team with uh, Centerpoint Properties to the west, who obtained site control of the old Republic Steel and put together an incentives package uh, to bring us to the present. Uh, President Obama came here a year ago fall and dedicated uh, a third shift at this plant. This is now a 24-7 plant, has 3,200 employees and uh, additional employees, and next door, 1.6 million square feet of auto suppliers who, who produce parts on a just-in-time basis for this plant. Another success story from the jobs uh, uh, industrial side was the undertaking of the CREATE project uh, in 2000-2001. Uh, the six railroads here were experiencing huge congestion problems. Uh, we had, a, we had a, a storm that had trains backed up from Omaha on the, on the west to New Jersey on the east. And uh, it finally uh, persuaded with the city's help and the state's help, let's, let's work together on, on clearing up some of these bottlenecks. Uh, and this plan is now about half done. It's a multi-billion dollar plan. The industry's put in about half of the money. And the good news about this plan, it not only positions Chicago for logistics growth, but it cleared up a lot of conflicts with Metro. Uh, has this been an unqualified success? No, we, we've not been able to stop uh, the decline of manufacturing jobs, uh, but we've abated it in some areas. And I think the good news is in a lot of key corridors like Kinsey uh, and North Corridor, we've been able to attract some new kinds of jobs by protecting those lands uh, for business services and logistics and so on. That's a plan that, that probably needs some tweaking at this point. We probably don't need 24 corridors. We might need, we might need a dozen and we might need some readjustments of the ones we have. And I know some of you out there have dealt with some of the zoning issues related to corridors. Well, just to pivot back to the uh, central area, uh, you remember that wonderful uh, picture Brad had of the uh, proposed World's Fair, that nice shot over Miggs Field. Uh, it took us another 20 years to do another central area plan. And um, what was the delay? Uh, well, we, uh, we, we were living on a lot of fumes. The 66 plan and the residential boom had, had served us well. Uh, but what, what provoked the plan here was, uh, first of all, the business community felt we were overdue for a plan, that, that growth coalition Brad showed you earlier. But importantly, um, the 66 and the 73 plans had been so successful in setting the stage for residential growth that by this time the business community was very worried that we were going to run out of land for offices downtown. And there was a big push and a series of studies done saying maybe we ought to rezone major portions of the loop for office only. And so the question came to us um, as, as planners and as consultants, um, is that the case and, and, and is, that, is that a path we might want to pursue? Uh, so uh, SOM did a, a fabulous land inventory, discovered we had a lot of land down here, including uh, land buildings that were ready to be demolished or in transition. And uh, we also combined that with a transit study and said, you know, we're not, we're not out of, we, don't, we shouldn't be resorting to one use. We've, we've spent 30 years trying to build a diverse environment here. Uh, let's, there's, there's two problems. One is let's increase densities. In particular, let's increase densities in the West Loop. And uh, arguably, this was very pivotal because this fed directly into the 2004 zoning reform. And subsequently, combined with market forces over there, we've had a real resurgence of the West Loop 
as a major office corridor. And if you look closely at this picture, this, this was an illustration we did at the time, saying that if you adjusted densities over there, this is the kind of development you could see. And if you look closely in the middle, you see a nice little green swath there. And that's uh, potentially a, uh, a covering over of the expressway uh, to finally tie West Loop and Greektown together and all that great growth to the west. Uh, one of the other conclusions of that study was uh, not only are we not running out of land, the, the other thing we are running out of, though, is transit capacity. Uh, already at this point, the brown line was experiencing huge uh, capacity problems. The red line was on the, on the border line. And uh, so there are a series of major transportation improvements were, were, were proposed, including this somewhat fanciful but, but important idea of expanding uh, Union Station and Ogilvy Center to the west, uh, something that will have to take place in some form in the future. There's an interim plan underway now to increase platforms and so on, but this would accommodate high-speed rail on the lower levels. Uh, a new Clinton Street subway, Red Line subway, Red Line 2, if you will, uh, in the middle, and then a series of transitways that would be grade separated downtown. One of them on the North Shore of the river on the old railroad right away under the Merchandise Mart and going out to Navy Pier. One under Monroe Street, which uh, most people don't know. Monroe Street has a subterranean level that has been kept clear, and uh, one down to the uh, McCormick Place. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the, the, the decade was very, uh, very kind to growth. So residential growth, which uh, had started here in River North, pushed west to, to uh, all the way to United Center, and then based on a lot of the planning work that had been done, the South Loop really took off as a major submarket, as you can tell here, all the way down to McCormick. And following that, we had the emergence of grocery and drugstores, and uh, finally convenient shopping uh, coming back to the larger loop. And of course, we all remember when the Dominics opened their first store on Roosevelt Road and the second one on Division. And now, of course, we have Trader Joe's and Maggiano's and you name it. So, um, and then hotel growth spurred uh, by Millennium Park, finally pulling all the hotel growth that shifted north of the river. It started pulling hotel growth back down into the loop and even into the West Loop, a renovation and new construction. So this is a summary. Uh, we think this is still a very, very relevant plan. It identified about $15 billion worth of projects, upgrades to uh, the lakefront, uh, replacing the missing uh, link between Navy Pier and North Avenue by pushing the beach out and creating park up there, a series of transitways, a new red line subway, uh, and so on. Uh, about $15 billion worth of work. Sounds like a lot of money, uh, but there have been years when we've spent one or two billion at O'Hare alone. Uh, and that 1966 plan that Brad talked to you about uh, was spending $500 million a year in capital expenditures in 1966 dollars. So these are not sums of money that, uh, that Chicago is unfamiliar with spending when it makes up its mind. Uh, but what happened to this plan? Uh, uh, does this look like a familiar uh, viewpoint? Um, so this is a, a roughly the same aerial view of, of that uh, proposed, that wonderful plexiglass model of the 1983 World's Fair. And once again, we became uh, fetched with this idea that we would, uh, would have a massive project uh, that would carry us into the, into the following decade. Uh, we're not arguing in the book that uh, the Olympic bid is bad per se, uh, but we are saying that uh, it might have been coupled with some uh, strategic public investments and uh, not, not pretending we could do it all with private money, um, that maybe, maybe combined with some strategic public investments, it could have been a different kind of bid. Uh, that's surmising. We don't know. But what did happen? We had the Olympic bid, which really tapped out the uh, private sector. 
Uh, Richard M. Daly, Lee Bay asked Richard M. Daly after we lost the bid, so where do we go now? I, I assume we're going to implement the Central Area Action Plan, and, uh, and Richard uh, said, no money from the feds, no money from the state. There's not much we can do. And within months, the mayor had announced his retirement. And then uh, something all of you in the room are very familiar with, we had something called a, a real estate bubble burst. We went into a, a three-year recession. So, Brad, we're going to pivot back to the neighborhoods a second. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So uh, we've seen the central area revive, uh, although the latest plans have not uh, been implemented to the same extent that the plans of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s were. Um, but I, I want to pivot here to the, to the neighborhoods. Uh, and the story is, uh, is not as hopeful, uh, in, uh, the history is not as um, positive as in the central area, but we now think that we have some tools that will be really successful in neighborhoods, uh, and we need to pursue those in the realm, uh, within, under the umbrella of a comprehensive plan. So I'm going to talk to you about some big pendulum swings and do this at a very high level, um, but look at the, the struggles that Chicago faced with, with the neighborhoods. Um, we have gone through various phases. One was an urban renewal phase where we bulldozed large neighborhoods. There was a backlash against that in the 1960s through the 1980s. And it's only in the last two decades that planning has kind of revived in a way that says we can start to think about neighborhoods in the same way we revived the central area and protected that, that central area. Uh, the old model of the 1950s and 60s we called urban renewal, which was very much a bulldozer-centric model. This is Chicago's south side, about uh, 30th, 5th Street, and what's now King Drive. Uh, the bulldozer was massive, and it wiped away large chunks of the city, only to rebuild with kind of uh, these high-rise forms uh, that we see today. This was very devastating to the urban fabric, to the neighborhoods, the communities involved. Uh, and it often built things that today we might think of as, as not all that desirable. Uh, neighborhoods had a backlash against this. They said you're, you're, this is a top-down form of planning. The only legitimate form of planning was truly neighborhood-based and bottom-up. And several organizations formed that were successful at becoming the, really the leaders of their community, like the Woodlawn Organization in Woodlawn. Uh, and this was a, this was a backlash uh, that had strong racial overtones. Remember, Chicago is very racially divided. Uh, and it's who's in charge. And for about uh, 30 or 20 years, from the 60s through the 80s, the only legitimate planning for neighborhoods was thought to be purely neighborhood-based. Now, the problem with that is, is that planning is hard. Neighborhood redevelopment is hard. What happens is, is that organizations like the Woodlawn Organization, or this is a one in Uptown, they became very good at finding a building, fixing it up, turning it into affordable housing. Housing's important, housing's an important part of any plan, but it's not a comprehensive plan. It's not the health clinics, the education, the parks, all those other items that you would think you would want to do if you really want to, to revive neighborhoods. And so what happened was these organizations from the bottom up became very good at, at little housing projects. Um, they weren't particularly strong at what it took to revive a neighborhood more holistically or comprehensively. Fortunately, in the 1990s, um, LISC, with the support of the MacArthur Foundation, LISC is the Local Initiative Support Corporation, they have a major office here in Chicago, they were based in New York, developed what we call the New Communities Program to really bring planning back to neighborhoods. No one had planned uh, neighborhoods like Uptown or Englewood or uh, the, the one I, or the Bronzeville community that I showed you earlier. 
Uh, and, and rather than have an open-ended uh, bottom-up process, completely bottom-up process, it married the planners who were, had a lot of sophisticated tools with the community organizations to together develop a quality of life plan, a comprehensive plan for a community. And it took it through various steps. This is a roadmap. And each one of these meetings was not open-ended. It was very targeted and focused. This was a focused process. And in the end, it generated not just tables and charts, but also a map that residents could buy into, as well as produce documents and things that could go to um, other funders, real estate interests, others who might say, yeah, I'm ready to buy into this plan because I see there's a holistic solution here. Uh, this is Englewood, 2005. I'm not going to say that Englewood has uh, revived or is, is still not a struggling community, but there's at least a plan that the community has bought into. It's a plan that's not just land use. It's about the police and the relations with the police. It's about schools. It's about uh, uh, jobs. It's a, it's a very much a comprehensive plan, but it finally gives a, a framework and some hope to the communities that have long been neglected because there was this period where there wasn't a public involvement, a public plan uh, for these communities. The uh, other element I want to talk about briefly before we move on to some of the challenges for the future uh, is the plan for transformation, another large-scale effort that uh, has, it's, is very controversial, but it's really taking a look at these communities and trying to rebuild not just the physical infrastructure but also the human capital from uh, public housing residents. This is an image on the west side. We've torn down the old high-rises, which I've argued in another book were quite a disaster. And in our place, we've built uh, residential communities that reintegrate with the urban fabric. Um, this is a major effort. We've done major work here. It's not always been perfect. Residents have not always been treated well. Um, but it bodes well for a future when we can plan a little more confidently uh, when we do neighborhoods. Let's come to the present. I want to turn to an initiative uh, called Chicago Neighborhoods Now, which is Mayor Emanuel's latest initiative. Uh, and this was uh, emblematic of what happens when we don't have a strong planning culture in the city. Uh, we announced, the mayor announced projects in seven neighborhoods. These were, um, these were what you might call quick hits. They were things that were maybe already on the table. They were not well connected. They were not integrated into a holistic plan. They were good little projects and interesting ideas, um, but it suggested that we hadn't really thought systematically. Uh, it didn't address things like foreclosure, that issue, which takes a larger plan. Uh, it, it, didn't, uh, it was primarily about existing conditions. It didn't think enough about the future. Um, but what we need to do is really uh, do a, a, a larger picture for Chicago neighborhoods now. Uh, and they're just starting to do this. And John and I are on a steering committee. We're happy to do this. This is really terrific, where we're going to take the existing plans that are out there and start to think about them more holistically. How do they interact? Can we build a comprehensive plan for uh, some of these neighborhoods that have not gotten the LISC treatment, like Englewood, uh, and to think about how to, to move forward on, across the city as a whole? Um, we need to do this because Chicago is still in tremendous flux. This is census data from 20, uh, 2000, last decade. Uh, this is co four complicated charts. The one on the upper left is non-Hispanic white movement. This is the green is large numbers of whites moving into the gentrifying north side. Uh, in the process, they displaced uh, Latinos who, who kind of left those areas. Uh, and also, it shows the dramatic flight of African Americans from the south and west sides 
They're seeking the American dream, moving to the suburbs, but there's no one to move in uh, to replace them. This is a, a major important point because uh, we need immigrants or we need somebody to fill uh, these spaces. And one of the reasons Chicago did not become Detroit, did not become Cleveland, did not become St. Louis, is that in the last two decades, three decades, we have been very successful at attracting immigrants, particularly Latinos, Hispanics, and Asian Americans. Um, this is the green line here for those in the back of the room. The green line is Hispanic immigrants. The purple line at the top is Asian immigrants. Detroit, very few. St. Louis, almost none. Cleveland, very few. If you don't have that population that's going to buy the houses in the neighborhoods that are, uh, that are, that are on the margins, then you're going to have housing abandonment and you're going to have a lot of problems. You're going to have a declining tax base and the spiral downward like happens in Detroit. Uh, and that's, that's what's going to happen. So we need to find a new population that to continue. We've always been a city of immigration all the way back um, to the 19th century. So that's a challenge. Another challenge we have is uh, our gerrymandered TIF districts. These are 151 TIF districts across the city. Uh, individually, TIF districts can be very powerful planning tools. When you have 151 of them, you've got 151 pots of money around the city, and I'm sure lots of good things have happened with some of that money, but what it does is distorts your capital budgeting across the whole city. Now you've got 150 honeypots and everybody's vying for it, but there's no thought of what do we need as a whole. Uh, and large areas get left out, uh, and, and the tax money gets, gets cornered into various ways. Um, and it also spurs more debt financing, and this has contributed to our ballooning debt as a city. Um, we've lost that fiscal discipline uh, that we once had. And so these are major challenges that we're facing for the future. Another reason we argue that we need to have a stronger plan to give a framework so that our capital budgeting, our neighborhoods, and the central area are all included in a way that can really point to the next 50 years for the city. I'm going to turn it over to John for, to bring us home. Okay. Thank you. So um, just talking a little more on this topic of, of where we are with, with Mayor Emanuel and planning. Uh, and in and, and, and deference to the challenges he's faced, it's, it's been drinking from a fire hose uh, for this administration. They came in with huge uh, pension issues, uh, underfunded programs, and so on, and so we're, we're extremely sympathetic to that. Uh, having said that, uh, we're, we're trying to continue planning in the city with resources that are down 40 percent. We've got wonderful people working down there, but uh, when you cut your departments 40 percent, you don't get the same results. There's also been a push towards what we call privatization of planning, and that is uh, World Business Chicago with, uh, produced a, a major economic study uh, the first year of the administration. It's often been referred to, uh, and we think it's a wonderful plan, uh, but it's half the picture. It's, it's what you can do uh, looking at it purely from a business development viewpoint, and that needs to be accompanied by a, a vigorous and strong municipal plan to go with it. Uh, so we... Uh, we have not gotten overly prescriptive in the book. We'd like, uh, we'd like the uh, community to draw some of its own conclusions. But we did pick up five themes uh, that we want to emphasize. The first is uh, we're, the urban culture and the uh, urban job base here are absolutely dependent on uh, an increased level of transit investment. And we need to talk about building real capacity, uh, not uh, fencing off bus lanes. Uh, we need major investments in, in rail systems here. Uh, we need to repopulate neighborhoods. Brad's talked about that. Uh, we need to adapt this industrial policy. It's a, it's a very mature policy at this point. 
Uh, no policy is good for 30 years usually. It needs to be tweaked. We've got new kinds of employment. Uh, we need to implement the central area plan. We've, uh, we've reaped huge benefits from plans that we did in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, uh, but to some extent we've been living on fumes. And uh, it's time to uh, reinvigorate our commitment. There's a series of wonderful actions that and identified in the 09 plan that we ought to, we ought to say, let's, let's get them done in the next four or five years. And then maybe most importantly, we, we've talked about this planning confidently, planning about having a culture of planning. Uh, planning, planning was the decision-making center during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, uh, and we, we assert that uh, that has become less true. So what's happened since this book came out? This book came out in April of last year. Uh, possibly coinciding with it, or great minds think in the same direction, uh, the Chicago Tribune began a series of uh, eight-part series on calling to the public to come up with a new plan of Chicago. Uh, and the eighth editorial of that series uh, became one that they uh, asked Brad and I to write about how would we get one started, and also Terry Mazzani from the Chicago Community Trust. And the trust has now gotten interested in, in this issue and, um, and, and feels like uh, this discussion that has started now in the last eight or ten months has given them a new way to talk and think about this. Uh, we've spent time talking to all of the major planning groups, AIA, APA, Lambda Alpha, the neighborhood groups, LISC is very involved now, academia. So uh, what we have proposed is uh, really an expansion of the Neighborhood Now program that began with the seven neighborhoods, but let's expand it to all 16. And uh, I think some nod to this dialogue this new city budget now has a Department of Planning and Development. So that's progress. And um, we are saying that at least as a starting point, the problems are so severe uh, in terms of depopulation in some of our neighborhoods, we can't wait. We should, we should find out what we can uh, understand from our existing plans over the next two or three years and start making, identifying some very strategic investments in the industrial corridors, in the central area, and in the neighborhoods. Having done that, we should then concurrently uh, launch a new comprehensive plan. It's a plan uh, that we think needs to be led by the city. It should be a vision that the public understands, that's transparent, the public should be involved in creating it because the public is gonna be asked to help fund it. Um, it will inevitably have to be a smart enough plan to attract private capital. You can't do all this with private mo public money. Uh, we've suggested to, uh, to just give the public something to uh, shoot for Maybe we could, as a community, try to get this done by 2016, which would be the 50th anniversary of when we last time we did a comprehensive plan, 1966. And uh, that accompanying that, we could uh, maybe have a new Wacker Manual. Uh, how many of you know, remember what the Wacker Manual is or have ever heard of it? Well, out of, out of the Burnham Plan, real quickly, real quickly, a wonderful businessman, uh, Charles Wacker, said we need to get the public to understand what's in the Burnham Plan, and he commissioned a textbook that was used in the eighth grade of the Chicago Public Schools for two decades and taught two generations how important planning was to the future of Chicago. And uh, we think it yielded some very important results. We're not sure we shouldn't be trying to do a lot more education on how important this is as well. And then possibly this could be a plan that could take us 20 years into the future to 2033, which would be the bicentennial of the incorporation of Chicago as a town. Thank you very much. I know we're out of town. Does anyone have any questions? Since Tony's a planner, he gets all the tough ones. 
Maybe many of you did not know that I was a city planner in my former yeah. life. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that you thought the plan should be completed by 2016. Do you mean the planning should be or the actual implementation of it should be done by 2016? What we're suggesting is, is if we began that plan now, uh, it would be a, plan, a document that could be issued to the public in 2016. <laughs> and you know in, in case you think that's an impossible task, almost every other major American city, uh, we're not talking about something that uh, the kind of planning that was done just eons ago. Almost every American city has done a major comprehensive plan in this past decade. Uh, we are the only major American city at this point that does not have major transit expansion efforts going on. And where are most of those efforts going on? In the Sun Belt, Denver, right on through the recession, putting in place a whole new light rail system, Phoenix, Tucson, all the cities in Texas. Uh, we are not expanding, we're not even keeping our existing transit up to date. So I think what we have to understand is we're not alone in this competitive world out there. A lot of other cities are making plans. Uh, Los Angeles has just put one up on their website that has taken key neighborhoods and key locations all over the city and says, here's what they look like now, and here's what they're going to look like 20 years from now. It should completely knock your socks off. But uh, Los Angeles, who thought, uh, who thought Los Angeles would be doing uh, more planning than Chicago? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was it economics, or was there a shift in the political thinking that drew Chicago away from its history of commitment to planning? Well, I'll give you, a, I'll give you the short answer, then Brad can talk about the change in culture. Um, uh, certainly there was a shift in federal priorities, uh, because you do remember in the 60s and 70s we had large, uh, large urban programs. The city was able to get funding for a lot of these transportation projects, 80% from the feds, 20% local. Those days are kind of gone. And uh, that was succeeded by the block grant program, and those days are kind of gone. So we are more reliant now on city and state kind of thing. So there was a shift. Uh, and so it's certainly not all on the city that we, that we moved away from that. We just didn't have the level of funding that we thought we would. Uh, but having said that, I think we also, uh, we also started just kind of resting on our laurels. We went, we went through a couple of decades there where we were really reaping the benefits uh, without having to do much more thinking about what's the next decade. Yeah. And Chicago has a yeah. political culture problem around planning. Aldermen control wards. They're not particularly interested in being told what to do. They kind of like the problem. idea of micromanaging block by block, driveway by driveway. Uh, mm -hmm. that, they perceive that as in their interests. And both Mayor Richard M. Daley and the Aldermen f felt like plans might hamstring their ability to operate. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we have a political culture problem. Yeah. Yeah. A question over there? Let me, let me go to the nearest person first, if you don't mind, but I see you. Yeah. Hi. A um, couple questions. Yeah. You didn't mention Metropolitan Planning Council. You didn't mention the Civic Alliance, which is a kind of private, uh, public trust trying mm -hmm. to move things forward. Yeah. And also the uh, Civic Committee and Economic Club that had developed the uh, Plan 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk to that? If, if have we, in fact, derailed? Well, um, I, I'm on, I'm on the, I've been on the MPC board for 15 years, so I'm pretty familiar with those plans. Um, the, the, there are a lot of good plans out there individually. Uh, and I think well, one of the things we're saying is uh, we need to move, we need to take a lot of the good ideas in those plans and incorporate them now into our city thinking. It needs to be become, they need to be officially adopted, they need to be incorporated in the way we think about budgets. Uh, but 
Absolutely, there's a lot of, one, Center of Neighborhood Technology has a wonderful plan about encouraging more transit-oriented development. We, we heartily endorse that. We'd love to see the city put in place some pretty aggressive uh, zoning and funding tools to get more development. Uh, there's a lot of uh, CTA stations that have been torn out around the city back in the 40s and 50s when we thought expressways were going to do it all. Uh, I'd love to see a lot of those rebuilt. Um, uh, the City Department of Transportation uh, is probably doing as much planning as anybody right now because they, they do have some transportation money. Uh, and CMAP uh, 2040 plan has some wonderful regional transportation plans. But I think they'll be the first to say we need a, we need a city that's committed to getting these plans implemented as well as, as on the regional level. And a lot of them can't be implemented unless the city gets a lot more proactive than it has been. Yeah. 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 So uh, repopulating uh, distressed neighborhoods, yeah. what uh, suggestions do you have not only to spur supply of new housing when you have a large supply of foreclosed housing in these areas for very little money, uh, but also increase demand for people that actually want to live in these neighborhoods. Uh, so the, there's no silver bullet to this. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to this. It, when communities have a plan that can spur some private investment, it will really uh, make a difference. And so the fact that these neighborhoods now, that some of the neighborhoods have gone through a LISC process to develop a quality of life plan will give some confidence to developers to varying extents, not everybody's going to start building in Englewood, but uh, to, that, that we have a vision for the future that this is not a giant, as giant a risk as it might otherwise have been. Uh, immigration reform, immigration policy is going to be a big uh, key, yeah. key thing. If, if we cannot attract uh, new migrants, then we're going to, to really struggle to find people to, to live. If, it's, if the strategy is purely a gentrification one, uh, that's, that seems enormous in this city, like, oh, wow. But uh, we lost 180,000 people in the last decade, uh, even as the gentrification took place in the north side. So it's not, uh, it has to be a, a multi-pronged strategy, and, and there's no real, it's going to be affordable housing, but it's also going to be planning, but it's also going to be immigration, it's going to be a school fix. All of that takes a comprehensive level look at our communities. Yeah. Um, I'm still going to take a couple more questions, but I'd like to ask, uh, ask everyone to please fill out your surveys. And also, um, the gentleman will be available afterwards if you'd like to uh, uh, purchase a signed uh, copy of their book as well. So let me take like two or three more questions. Do you have a question? Someone here at this table? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, speaking about uh, bubbles, about economic bubbles, about um, different micro changes to economies and culture and things of that nature. I mean, obviously planning deals on more of a larger macro level, but do you um, look at things like, uh, you know, the, the recent hotel boom or the, the big, obviously the residential boom of the 2000s, and how do you counteract that? Well, um, I'm, I'm a great believer in market forces in terms of controlling booms. Um, the reality is uh, city zoning, to some extent, can control uh, the pace of development and where it goes. Uh, but frankly, I'm, I'm less worried about uh, booms in the city than I am about um, what I'm calling kind of growing. There's, there's a lot of growing nimbyism. There's, there's, um, I think the Children's Hospital site recently has been a, a case study of, of uh, a surrounding single-family neighborhood saying, yes, we had a, 
a major business hospital operation going on here, and, um, and we're not sure we want a lot of density. So we've, we've got some challenges, I think, with if, if neighborhoods have good plans, then, there's, then there is something for the alderman sometimes to hang their head on and say, I don't just automatically have to be against uh, a new development coming in. And I think, there's, there's been, I think there's more of a danger there, frankly, than there is um, on, uh, that we're going to go too far. I think the market has done a pretty good job of correcting. Um, so I'm not proposing, I don't think we're proposing any market kind of controls on the market. Um, but I do think uh, one of the roles of planning is, is to direct some of the investment into some areas maybe that aren't by themselves attracting. And, and you know, better schools can do that. Road improvements can do that. Better parks can do that. Um, so there's, there, are, there are tools that the city has at least to maybe redirect some of that, I think, would be good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you just hit on my question. It was about yeah. the school system, because it yeah. seems to me that one of the reasons that there's been a loss of population is the middle class, you know, yeah. they can't afford to send their kids to private schools in the city of Chicago, so they're not going to go, so they end up leaving to the suburbs. So that's, it seems to me the Chicago public school system has a vital role to play in all this. Absolutely. Yeah, ab absolutely, and it, it's, it's distressing when we close 50 schools but don't really have a thought to what's gonna which happen schools? to them, which schools <laughs> or what, um, and that, that, you know, that there's not a thought to that comprehensive effort, what's this going to do to a community, and how are we going to, 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 to counteract that? Um, the, without a strong confidence in the school system, many neighborhoods will continue to struggle. I will say one of the things I think the administration has done a tremendous job on so far is getting the city colleges uh, reoriented and tied into some of the programs in the industrial corridors. I think the uh, there's some of the programs now focused on logistics, and there's a new, one, uh, new programs going to be focused on the medical district. So I think that continuing education is very important as well, especially for job growth. And uh, they've done a good job there. Uh, public schools remain a, a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah. If there's no one else, I want to thank you for this uh, candid and yeah. thoughtful discussion. Yeah. It was really a lot of fun. I could, I can sense that everyone had a good time today. So let's thank John and Brad for coming, everyone. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. There's a uh, programs committee meeting after this. Please fill out your surveys. The gentleman will be available for questions if you'd like. And see, uh, Beth, if you think you are one of the first 25 registrations for this luncheon to pick up your free copy of the book. Yeah.